Welcome to Research Uncensored, a podcast by Research FDI, your trusted investment attraction and business intelligence partner. Join me, Bruce Tackethman, and my co-host, Amber Hunter, as we bring you behind the scenes with economic development professionals around the world. We're going to find out the real stories behind the project wins and get to know some of the top players in the game today. We would like to thank the Next Move Group for sponsoring today's podcast. Next Move Group helps small to medium-sized companies, communities, and organizations create economic growth through executive searches that assist economic development organizations with hiring quality EDO professionals. They also provide site selection services to manufacturers, in addition to a suite of products designed to help organizations be successful. Welcome to another episode of Research Uncensored. Joined today by our guest co-host, Erica Magder. Welcome to the show. Hey, Bruce. Thanks for having me on. Erica's going to be filling in for a couple episodes while Amber's off on maternity leave with her baby daughter, Paige, and also joined in studio by Adam Solomon, our executive producer. Hey, guys. Great to be here again. Well, guys, we have a great guest today. We have Chris Steele from EVP joining us today. Yeah, I was so excited to, to have Chris on the show. We got to see him a couple of weeks ago live in Montreal at the Area Development Forum. How did you like attending that forum, Bruce? Well, it was great. It was some great content. It was good to have some of our clients, uh, Canadian and U.S. clients, enjoying Montreal for all it is, up for the great weather. We had some great weather that week. So uh, it's good to have everyone back enjoying Montreal. So we're pumped. So let's go ahead and dial them in right now. All right, let's welcome our next guest all the way from Boston, Massachusetts. Chris Steele, welcome to the program. How you doing? Doing really well, Bruce. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's a lot of fun to be here. I was so uh, good seeing you a couple weeks ago in Montreal. Uh, how did it feel to be back up, up north? It's it, honestly, it's wonderful. It's been a, a real missing element of my life over the past two years. Uh, I, I think that you know very, very well. Uh, first of all, for the past 30 years, I've been a road warrior, and so much of that time has been spent particularly north of the border. So just be back around my Canadian friends was a huge, huge joy to be back. It, it's just so wonderful. Plus, I got to restack on all of my Canadian snacks, so all of my staff is happy. As long as you get your ketchup chips and coffee crisps and bring those to the States, you'll be okay. Exactly. Any issues uh, getting across customs, with, especially with your name being synonymous with uh, <laughs> someone from MI6? <laughs> you know, it's funny that you bring that up. That's actually, I, I've had a mistaken uh, identity issue with that. Um, but uh, no, it, it, it once that... Um, <laughs> No, I have not had an issue with that. I did have a problem where MSNBC accidentally used my picture when they were giving an update on the dossier file. But um, aside from that, I've been okay. I always knew there was something about you, so I'm not completely surprised. <laughs> <laughs> great avenue uh, up, up here. Um, we saw you at the Area Development Forum in Montreal. And we, we, had, we had a great conversation. We're like, hey, this is going to make a good podcast. So we, we started talking about kind of your decision back in the day, maybe about, it's around 10 years ago. Uh-huh. You're, you had your own firm, ICA. It was a U.S. And a, and a Dutch firm. And you, you eventually sold your firm to Conway. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey uh, to making sure. that move once you have your company acquired? Sure. I uh, So I founded the U.S. side of Investment Consulting Associates, at that point known as CWS Consulting, back in February of 2009. Um, for, for as long as I have been doing what I do in, in corporate site location and economic development consulting, uh, I, I felt that I wanted to start to establish something with a little bit of my own imprint on it. Um, the way that I approach site selection, I, I guess, was probably learned through 
coming at it from originally an urban planning background. So very holistically and very, very much from that standpoint of understanding how regions grow and change and evolve and how the interactions of people at a certain point create a community. So that really is a, uh, you know, kind of a, a philosophy that got wrapped into how I was helping companies make location decisions. You're really looking at everything that goes into making a location work. And then also the advice that I was giving to economic development agencies as to how to better understand who they are and then how to then think about that for the things that are going to be relevant and and really kind of appropriate and and strong advantages for them as they are trying to either grow investment, uh, grow entrepreneurial business, uh, and really become the next stage of who they want to be as a community. And it's been really kind of wonderful. By being able to do that uh, as an entrepreneur, I was able to then kind of surround myself with like-minded people, and we we went a long way towards developing new methodologies in economic development, uh, developing very strong client bases that loved working with us, uh, really pushing that into a foreign direct investment sphere and working with uh, with jurisdictions as far and wide as Azerbaijan and the Kingdom of Jordan, uh, and then over a period of time, we were trying to figure out where could we take this, where could we bring this to the next level of just you know finding uh, finding a place to invest and also people to work with. Uh, and you know a lot of people that I had enjoyed working with had ended up over at Conway, so we uh, we ended up bringing it over that way. We just had a, a couple of questions about you know the travel. You mentioned how how much travel <laughs> you did you know in the past. Uh, so what are some of the the cool places that you've been? Maybe what are what are the top top five, top two? And some of the cool projects that you've worked on, either at Conway or at ICA. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, there are definitely places that I look forward to when when they show up on my on my travel docket. Um, you know, certainly, you know, and this is not by buttering you guys up, but Montreal is definitely on that list. But as are also um, really, uh, there are a lot of the Canadian locations that I adore going to. Toronto, there is a there's a special place in my heart for Toronto. Um, just, I had, you know, as a we kid, won't hold I, that against you, Chris. I know, <laughs> and I know, and and uh, we'll talk about the Leafs some other time. Um, but um, yeah, it just I can't explain it. But from a, a when I was a young kid, somehow the uh, the town of Toronto came into my my mentality, and it was something that, that just kind of I was there. Um, I've I've loved spending the time that I do in Edmonton. Vancouver is just one of the most gorgeous places on earth. Now, let me get out of my Canadian hat here for a moment. Uh, anytime that um, you know San Francisco's on my docket, uh, or Amsterdam, or London, um, in terms of other places that I've gone though that I've really fallen in love with, uh, Amman, Jordan is by far one of the uh, the favorite places that I've had the uh, the pleasure to work, uh, and some of the most wonderful people and some of the best food that you will have. <laughs> Nice. I, I can't say I've been there yet, so I'll, I'll definitely have to add that to my list and uh, try to make sure we, we get over there soon. The food. Okay. I'm, I'm a, I'll, I'll definitely be into the Middle have Eastern somebody, food. Have somebody local. Have a local take you for Mansaf. Mm. Uh, Mansaf loosely translates as a big deal. And um, if you've ever had uh, Reichstafel in, uh, in the Netherlands, which is basically a rice table with like everything on it, it's the Jordanian version of that. A lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, of stewed meats, uh, yogurts, yogurt sauces, and all kinds of fun stuff. It's all eaten with bread, and it's just it's wonderful. 
Oh, that does sound great. It's funny. It's funny you mentioned that. I have a friend uh, over there who keeps telling me to come and visit him. So <laughs> he, you, you might have just pushed me over the edge a little bit there. Go. You'll be very, very happy you did. Can you tell us a little bit about you know some of the challenges you're hearing you know now um, in speaking with some of your economic development clients and and maybe how that has changed in the past few years uh, post pandemic. Oh, sure. I mean, it, as much as we were talking about uh, issues with, with talent and talent attraction, even before the pandemic, it's uh, it has just been magnified in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. Any jurisdiction that you talk to, and quite frankly, any of our private sector clients, all is including that as at least a prime, if not the prime issue that they're all talking about. Uh, from a jurisdictional side of things, they are um, thinking about the uh, just how how uh, how how shallow the talent pool has become, how how very hard it is to find people, but they're also talking about some of the follow-on effects of COVID and how it's had some uh, some interesting follow-on effects, um, difficulties in terms of childcare, but also with a lot of people working very remotely now, you've had some housing markets that have been completely disrupted. Uh, people, of course, can now work pretty much anywhere. There's a lot of the uh, the remote working that we've uh, that we saw over the past couple of years is very likely to become a permanent uh, aspect of of the other uh, workplace environment. Within some of the jurisdictions I work with, though, it's had this curious follow-on effect where people did, in fact, go places where they wanted to live, and in some cases, those were lower cost or what had been traditionally lower cost of living locations. So people went ahead and moved and took their New York or their Boston or their Montreal or their Toronto uh, or, or London or Amsterdam salaries and moved to like St. John or they moved to rural Maine or they moved to Minneapolis or they moved to rural Pennsylvania. And it's creating this situation where uh, places that had been a little bit more affordable in terms of cost of living are now finding themselves with a housing crunch. Interestingly enough, in some cases, those are duplicate houses or second houses. So it's not just creating a uh, an increase or an inflation in the housing cost, but it's also not resulting in any form of uh, of housing cost softening on the, if you will, the sending jurisdictions. Hmm, that that's an interesting perspective for sure. So I, we've definitely heard a lot about the labor labor crunch and labor costs, uh, but not so much on on how that's affected small communities in terms of housing. So um, no, that's that's a really interesting perspective and something I hadn't thought of. Do you find that companies are then um, changing the their salaries? Like we've heard of some of the larger companies that have uh, adapted their employee salaries based on where they decided to move to. Has that been an issue you've heard? Uh, among the companies that I work with, not quite yet. Are they talking about it? Yes, um, but you know they are not yet talking about making adjustments to you know base salaries for for cost of living reasons. The labor market is so so tight that strategically, competitively, they can't do that right now. Yeah, if they were to talk about reducing salary for any reason, then the person would just walk. There are plenty of other options out there. Yeah, for sure. Nowadays, uh, employee, employers are just throwing everything they can to, to keep their employees happy. So that, that makes a lot of sense. So if you want to live in rural Maine and work from home, then then go for it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what, what aspect of economic development rural communities often uh, use uh, as a tactic is incentives. Uh, and that's an area of your expertise as well. Can mm-hmm. you tell us how important it is uh, 
I guess how is that how important these days incentives are for regions looking to attract FDI domestic projects to their community? So I, you know, I, Bruce, you know this. I'm, I tend to be a little bit more of an incentive skeptic. I've I've written on the topic a lot over over my career, and my issue is not necessarily with the use of incentives per se. I, I think that there is some real wisdom in developing good programs that create benefit for both sides of the equation. There are plenty of examples of, uh, of incentives where you know, it brings a, an investment that wouldn't otherwise have come uh, and therefore also spurs new investment in infrastructure and in job training and in secondary effects like the spending that those employees make within a jurisdiction. So there's definitely a case to be made. The challenge that I have is, is that, well, it's multiple fold. Um, one is is that there is, in my perception, an illusion that has been created on because of the changes in site selection over the past couple of years that seems to elevate the importance of incentives. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, let me explain. When I was just a kid analyst uh, working in a basement in Hackensack, New Jersey, we ended up building a lot of the same weighting and ranking models that we do today. But we had to input a lot of the data out of magazines and out of written journals and uh, and documents that we would uh, that we would have from census or from Bureau of Labor Statistics, and do it by hand and put it into Excel. And we ran out of data pretty quickly, so we'd have to send these long requests for information out to a longer list of jurisdictions on things like real estate costs, construction costs. Um, access to educational institutions, information on quality of life, uh, just everything that kind of goes into the uh, to the equation. Now, particularly over the past 15 years or so, we've had much more access to more fulsome data at a much earlier stage. So we're able to work with either subscriptions or with new-to-data sources that are available online for free or our own GIS systems. So we're able to do a lot more of that analysis on the desktop before we go out and actually approach a jurisdiction. So we'll have a lot of the workforce information. We'll have a lot of the quality of life information and what have you. So it ends up being that the things that go out on that RFI to a much shorter list of communities are the things that are consistently changing or are negotiable, such as real estate and incentives. So it means that the RFIs that the economic development agencies are, re, are are getting are largely centered around real estate and then also figuring out what kinds of assistance might available might be available. And my fear is that that then creates the perception that the only things that are important in the location decision are in fact incentives and and real estate. Now, if your community knows its own strengths and knows the kinds of activities that would want to be there and is approaching the decision in a very knowledgeable and intelligent way, you can develop an incentive package where you can actually figure out how to get mutual benefit out of it. If, however, your perception is is that the incentive is the only thing that's ever going to make anybody look at you, you end up doing things that are quite foolish and also start to target them against things that may not actually be a good fit for you, either because they wouldn't naturally want to be there and the, the situation will deteriorate over time, or because it's going to bring externalities you wouldn't expect. Incentives, as I think about it, they're a tool. So 
if you think about it that way, um, you know, they can, tools are very, very handy and useful things. You can do a lot of really great things if you know how to use your tools. Uh, you know, for example, you know, a, a good drill or a miter saw or anything of that nature, you can build some fantastic furniture. But you don't use it to hang a picture on the wall, and you don't hand it to a toddler. That being said, you know, which states are good at using their tools, at using their incentives, and which states use them kind of in a foolish way in your mind, and which, in your mind, where's the balance between using them and what you've seen over the years? So it's it's interesting. Um, I'll actually give you a Canadian example. The uh, A lot of the work that the province of Alberta has been doing recently, both on the, uh, the APIP program, uh, which is the Alberta's Petrochemical in- uh, Innovation Program, and then a lot of the changes they then made to the Municipal Government Act, allowing the local municipalities to participate and create uh, programs for, for tax sharing, were done from a point of explicit knowledge of the province's strengths and also limiting the tools available such that nobody could hurt themselves very badly. So I think that the work that has been done there actually has has, has been really quite good. Um, some of the programs that I've worked with in the, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania have been uh, quite good and are really a little bit more focused around things like workforce, things that are definitely going to produce a net positive benefit, regardless of what happens with that with any particular investment. Now, um, Chris, you mentioned um, you mentioned Alberta, um, and say say you're a European, uh, say you're a German advanced manufacturer, and you're looking at, at expanding uh, to say Canada or the U.S. How are incentives designed differently between Canada and the U.S.? Which which companies look out for? Well, the first is is that for for many many years the Canadian perspective was that uh, that there are no incentives uh, within within the jurisdictions, and it's just not something that uh, that, that Canada does. The reality always has been a little bit different, um, and part of it is just nomenclature. Uh, a lot of the programs that are available uh, across Canada in terms of workforce training or, or even um, for supporting uh, innovation and, um, and research and development, if you were to frame them within an American context, you'd call it an incentive. Um, I do think that there is a difference between an American perspective and really just about anywhere else. In that um, the states, since we have 50 of them down here, and many of them end up being in fairly close proximity to each other, they use the incentive discussion as a as a way of trying to differentiate themselves with their close neighbors. That's the kind way of saying that um, you, you can use them to create a competitive environment that creates a bidding war between the uh, between the states. So I've I've always had this impression that in some cases incentives could be used to mask certain flaws or certain shortcomings that a region or a community might otherwise have. What's your opinion on that? So it's actually it's a really good question, um, and it, it's it's sometimes used in exactly that kind of a framework where there's a perceived competitive disadvantage, and you use the incentive to overcome it couple of flaws with that one is is that you know it it ends up over the longer period of time uh, a lot wiser to actually try and address what the problem is so you know if if in fact you've got a workforce problem or an education problem providing a tax credit doesn't actually solve the education problem um, the other issue is is that you know very often the the negotiated incentive deal uh, can't be complied with for for some reason or another so that band-aid ends up not being in place 
Um, there are situations where there may be some form of a shortcoming or, or an obstacle that you can overcome with an incentive, such as a piece of infrastructure that's missing. I, I wouldn't see that, though, as like a, you know, a temporary masking of a flaw so much as a using a program to actually address a problem and fix it. Thanks, Chris. So I, I think that really helps uh, give us a great understanding of, of your perspective on incentives. And I'm sure that you'll you'll get some some people perhaps contacting you after this podcast for, for more details on, on how you can help them uh, in their region specifically. Uh, I guess before we wrap up, we, we haven't really talked about what you're up to now. So do you want to tell us a bit? I think it's been about a year uh, that you've been working uh, with EB and uh, would love to you know, hear a little bit about what you're doing now and how, how things are going one year into that job. Thank you, Erica. Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually, it's really wonderful to be here at EBP. Um, the, we have the benefit here within the Boston, the U.S. office of being a relatively small practice of about 16 people, but within a firm of about 500 globally. And, um, you know, I've been able to really have the ability to be entrepreneurial here in terms of growing the economic development and strategic location practice. But with the benefit of, first of all, working with an incredibly talented team here in Boston that really understands economic impact, municipal finance, as well as transportation, logistics, and, um, and infrastructure. But then also work with a global team that is doing fantastic work. If, if you aren't already familiar with EBP, um, the, uh, the Basler family has uh, a legacy going back to the 70s of really thinking very, very deeply about sustainability and resilience uh, across all sorts of systems across society. So what it really means is that the organization is committed on a global level to really giving back and leaving the world a little bit better than it found it. What that means in the site selection and economic development side of things is that we're constantly now pushing towards innovation, uh, towards sustainability, towards helping uh, economies transition towards things that are going to provide for opportunity and a better quality of life with any of the regions that we work with. It's been very, very exciting, and uh, and we're continuing to work on it. It's We'll see where we go. Chris, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. Any any big plans for the weekend coming up? Uh, staying out of the 35-degree heat. Uh, yes, perhaps uh, catching a Red Sox game. <laughs> perhaps. Uh, that and, um, you know, maybe, like I say, taking it just a little bit cool. I think if I can maybe get out after uh, either before or after the peak of the heat, I'll get on the bike and put a couple of miles in. So, Chris, what's the best way for people to reach you at your new position? Uh, actually, there are two ways that really make a lot of sense. The first, of course, is to find me through LinkedIn. You can you just go ahead and find my profile there. Look for the look for the Chris Steele that works at EBP. Otherwise, you may end up with the MI6 spy. <laughs> the other way is uh, through very simple email. It's just Chris Steele S T E E L E at EBP US dot com. Well, Chris, again, appreciate the time and looking forward to seeing you back on the road soon. Likewise, Bruce. Folks, it's been a pleasure being with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you all for tuning in. You can find us on the web at www.researchfdi.com, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter at ResearchFDI. Tune in next week as we have another guest from the economic development world. 